Hello and welcome to episode 29 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by CJ Nitkowski. CJ pitched in the majors for eight different teams over parts of 10 seasons. You can check out his website, cjbaseball.com, and give him a follow on Twitter at CJ Nitkowski. CJ, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Oh, no problem. My pleasure, Ross. Nice to talk with you. Well, CJ, let's start at the beginning. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. I tell you, I loved it as a kid. I mean, I remember being six, seven years old, uh, you know, playing t-ball, and it was just one of those things for me that I was absolutely enamored by. Um, I always had a ball in my hand, whether it was a tennis ball or a football, but mostly a baseball, and just loved throwing always as a little kid. I just was constantly throwing a ball somewhere where it's either with a friend or up against the wall or up against my grandmother's house. Um, I was just one of those kids that really instantly took to baseball and uh, and just fell in love with it. And really, you know, since I was a little kid, it was always always the sport that I loved the most. By the time you were in high school and you started playing, obviously at a higher level, what kind of pitches were you throwing at that point? Well, I tell you, I, you know, in high school I was I was pretty average. You know, I didn't get drafted out of high school, didn't throw particularly hard. But back then, I was throwing you know, four seam fastball, a straight changeup, and a very traditional uh, traditional curveball. And so that's where I was in high school. And then, you know, over the course of your career, uh, my repertoire uh, definitely changed and developed significantly. Did it surprise you that you were undrafted out of high school? No, not at all. I mean, I threw 79 miles an hour. I was probably 6'1", 6'2", 170 pounds maybe. And, uh, you, know, I, you know, nothing that stuck out. And there was guys in the area. I grew up in uh, New York, went to high school in uh, northern New Jersey. And there were some kids that were getting drafted, they were throwing, you know, anywhere from 87 to 92. Uh, I wasn't even close to that. And so it really did not surprise me at all. Didn't even know what day the draft was uh, back in 1991 when I graduated high school. And so never really thought of that it was anything that was on the radar. I barely uh, had an opportunity to even play in college. So at that point, when you're 17, 18 years old, did you think you were going to be a major league baseball player? I did. I mean, it's one of those things that I tell people all the time, despite where I was as an amateur throughout my career, uh, as an amateur, I always believed that I would make it to the big leagues. I guess I was, I mean, I guess it doesn't seem like I was naive now, but I was then uh, thinking where I was from a talent standpoint um, and trying to be objective and saying, well, you know, this is not a guy that's really on the radar professionally. But I, um, you know, I always believed it. It was always my dream. And uh, it really wasn't until I got into college after a couple of years that I realized that uh, that could become a reality. You eventually went to college, excelled, and you were drafted by the Reds in the first round of the 1994 draft. What was that day like for you? That was incredible. I mean, it was the realization of a dream come true, or at least part of it, at least the first step. Um, again, not being drafted in, at a high school, uh, having some struggles early on in college, and then really having some development by the time my sophomore year of college came around and started throwing a lot harder uh, and really had gotten you know myself on the radar and then really, you know, leading up to the draft, it just it seemed like as each day went or as we got closer to the draft, I kept hearing that I was going to go higher and higher. And when my junior year started in college, they were telling me I might go in the 10th round. And I was thrilled by that. Just the fact that I was actually going to get drafted uh, was pretty incredible to me. But as my season went on, as I did better, as other guys struggled, uh, I slowly moved up the ladder. And it wasn't until about two weeks before the draft that I was told that uh, I would probably go pretty high in the first round, which was shocking to me. Um, but it was a great day. I mean, for me, my family, all the work, all the uh, time my parents put in supporting me uh, and really have this opportunity now become a reality and join a professional organization and and try to start working toward uh, pitching in the big leagues. It was a great moment for me. You mentioned seeing a velocity increase around your sophomore, junior year in college. What did you do mechanically that allowed you to throw the ball harder? 
you know, I always tell people there was no magic formula. I mean, I made almost a 15-mile-an-hour jump. Like I said, I was 79 miles an hour as a senior in high school and, and touching 94 leading up to the draft. Um, I started long tossing a little bit more. Uh, I was in a more competitive environment, which I think helped. I had some very competitive teammates and roommates. I think that helped push me a little bit. We pushed each other uh, as far as how hard we worked uh, in the off seasons, but also during the season. I gained some weight naturally. I think that was just part of you know being in college and out on my own and still growing. Uh, I probably put on you know 15 or so pounds over the course of my um, college career, and I think really all of those things kind of led up to it. There was no magic formula for me. Uh, I think growing up maybe in the Northeast not playing as much helped me a little bit, or at least long-term it helped me, um, and maybe that was part of the reason why my growth uh, came a little bit later. But um, a lot of it, it was just, I mean, a lot of it was just natural, the environment that I was in, and uh, it ended up being obviously a huge difference maker for me. So at this point, it's 1994, you're a top 10 pick. What were your expectations of yourself and of what your career would be at that point? Um, you know, I don't know if I really had any definitive expectations. I just thought, okay, I'm going into professional baseball, uh, you know, and here we go. And I had no idea really what to expect. I wasn't a guy that uh, studied the the minor leagues at much at all. I didn't know what it was like, what it was about. I didn't understand really what each level was. Uh, the Cincinnati Reds sent me direct, directly to AA from the draft out of college, and I didn't really know, you know, what that meant. I didn't realize it was such a big deal uh, until really after I'd gotten to the system and really started to understand how it worked. But for me, it was just... Um, I didn't have specific goals in the sense that I wanted to win 300 games or be an all-star or go to Hall of Fame. I just was excited to start my career and was ready to start an adventure, and I had no idea uh, really where it was going to take me. You started your career in AA, your professional career in AA, and you made the majors less than a year after you were drafted. You struggled a bit as a rookie. Was that the first time you, you feel like you struggled at baseball? A little bit. No, not you know, not really. I mean, I had my freshman year in college was not good. I was ended up going 1-8 and eight with an area over 4 at a, at a Division II college of Florida Atlantic. Uh, you know, that's certainly not... Uh, not an ideal situation for anybody who dreamed of playing baseball. Uh, but going there, uh, when I got to Cincinnati, I was 22 years old uh, and actually started out pretty well. My first two games went really well. Threw six shutout in my debut, let up just one run in my next. My fourth start, I, I beat Kurt Schilling one nothing uh, for my first major league win. And four out of my or three out of my first four starts were really good. Um, but then I really started to have some big, big struggles. I had three really bad starts in a row and got sent down. And for me, that was the first time I experienced that level of failure on that stage. And what I realized in retrospect, I didn't realize that at the time, but uh, I wasn't ready for that. That's the part that I wasn't ready for. So it was great to get to the big leagues and to have some early success over my first couple of outings. But when they, when I really started to struggle, I put a tremendous amount of pressure on myself uh, made more out of my failures than I probably should have. I've always been a guy who's never given myself credit for what I do well and really harp on the things that I do bad, which is not a good recipe uh, for a professional athlete, especially in a sport like baseball where there's so much time to think. And so uh, that was difficult. I mean, that was definitely difficult when I got sent back down, went back down to AAA and pitched, uh, had two starts uh, for Indianapolis. And I remember talking to my manager and he had said to me, he goes, man, what's wrong with you? He said, when you left here, you were a completely different guy. I mean, I left there with an ERA, and I think it was like a, about a one two nine. Came back two starts later, it was up over five. And uh, and I just told him flat out, I was honest with him. I said, you know, I said, Bombi, Mark Bombard was my manager. I said, I, I, my confidence is shot. And that had to do with, um, you know, getting my tail kicked at the big league level. I just was not ready for it. 
uh, didn't understand how to handle it at that degree. And I really, honestly, I tell people this in complete honesty, I thought that my career was almost over at that point. I really thought that I had my shot and I blew it. And I was just so down on myself. It was a really difficult time for me uh, to go through those losses. And then I always wondered, I ended up getting traded after those two starts in AAA, still my first full year in baseball. And I always wondered if that conversation that I had with him, alluding to the fact that I had lost confidence so quickly in my career, uh, had something to do with it. You got traded essentially halfway through your rookie year. Do you feel like the Reds gave up on you? No, I don't think so. I mean, they were making a run. I mean, they were in first place when I was there. And I think that contributed to some of the added pressure that I put on myself. Uh, you know, and that's why I struggled with some of that failure. But they realized they had an opportunity. Jim Bowden was an extremely aggressive general manager. I mean, he was aggressive in the fact that, you know, with me, that he would put me right in double-A and that he would call me to the big leagues. I made my debut a year to the day that I signed my contract. I signed my contract on June 3rd of 94. I made my debut June 3rd of 95. And so he was extremely aggressive. And so he saw an opportunity to get David Wells. I was packaged with uh, Dave Tuttle and then eventually Mark Lewis. And that was that was the opportunity for them to get uh, a significantly better and more proven starter to make their run at the postseason. And, uh, and he's the kind of guy that would make those kind of moves. And so I, I never looked at it as um, – him giving up on me. I understood the business at least a little bit. I started to understand how it worked and never took it personally anytime that I was traded or released. I mean, this is a business. Uh, it took me a while to learn that, but I, I ultimately understood that was, that was the reason they did it. We're in the postseason now. The World Series is being played. There's only at most two games of baseball left this year. Uh, throughout the playoffs, we've heard a lot about momentum, about one big win can uh, you know, spur a team success the next game. How much did you feel like one good win or one bad loss could affect you the next game? I don't think too much. I mean, listen, it's always nice to pitch well, and that helps you feel a little bit better, I think, going into your next start. And then, the, you know, on the opposite side of that, when you struggle, that can certainly carry over. And so that can, that can be an issue as well. But uh, momentum, I think, ultimately, uh, I think we have a tendency to overblow it a little bit, at least game to game. In game, I, I would say there's definitely more to it. Uh, but game to game, it has more to do with uh, how you feel, quite honestly. I mean, you do your work in between starts. You do all your preparation you know, you do what, you know, has always made your body feel right going into your next start. Uh, but there are days where you just don't have it. So, uh, you know, we've seen guys get on rolls and that's certainly something that can happen where everything seems to be going right and clicking for an extended period of time, or even the days that you're not feeling great, you still find ways to win. Uh, I think good pitchers realize that and find a way to do that. But for me, um, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say when you're younger, maybe a little bit, I think for me, I know that I carried, losses with me or I carried bad performances with me very heavily, uh, which was absolutely detrimental to my career. I just didn't realize it at the time. Um, so there's something to be said for momentum uh, a little bit, but I think when you're talking from a starter standpoint uh, or even, you know, even as a team game to game, uh, it's not necessarily there. It's, I think it's always about uh, you know, who can step up and who can perform. Did you ever shake that, that mental of carrying those losses, carrying that bad outing with you like five years into your career? Were you still doing that? Uh, it took me a while, I'll be honest with you, and it's really one of the hardest things for me to admit because it seems so simple. I mean, you know, how could I knock it over? But I, I can't I can't tell you definitively when it happened. Uh, it took me a long time, though, to really get over that. And, and the mistake that I realized I made as I look back at my career, what the early failure did to me uh, was completely take away my aggressiveness and my edge, uh, the things that I think helped me to get drafted and put me in that position to begin with. And then uh, what I was doing, unbeknownst to me at the time, was that I was basically just trying to survive. I was just trying to keep my head above water, uh, to stay in the big leagues, uh, basically, you know, not to drown, not to get released, um, 
and that's the wrong way to go about it. You're never going to be successful in anything that you do uh, if you're just trying to hang in there and be average. And it took me a really long time to really get a good grasp on the mental side of this game. I felt like I finally did, and that was probably you know, into my early 30s, to be quite honest, when I really started to really understand it completely, uh, which is <laughs> a little bit late. Um, but I think ultimately that, uh, the realization of that uh, combination of the work ethic that I had, uh, the natural talent level that I was given, um, the evolution of my repertoire, all those things combined, they kept me in the game. It, it, it helped me to continue going uh, to essentially pitch until I was 39 years old, uh, even though I never reached any high levels of success. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that all those experiences, uh, getting over them, understanding them, taking something away from the good ones and the bad ones, uh, kept me in the game and allowed me to do this for a long time. It's interesting. It seems like from a baseball standpoint, you are almost doing the equivalent of, of playing the prevent defense, just like tr- trying to hang in there. Kind of, yeah, yeah. And like I said, it's really, it's one of those things that I, it took me forever to realize it. And it's so disappointing because I had such a great opportunity. I mean, I was getting starts in the big leagues at 22 years old uh, and 23 years old. But at the same time, I also know that I just wasn't physically, partially physically, but mostly mentally not ready. Um, I always wondered what it would have been like for me uh, had I gone through a regular uh, development program like most guys do. Now you see a guy like Michael Walker who are watching now, it was you know a year and a half removed from college, and he's and he's killing it, and he's doing great, and I think it's uh, it's outstanding to see. It's really impressive to me to see a young guy handle it so well. I think we're in a different era where younger pitchers now they're getting started earlier in their careers, even their amateur careers, and getting so much more experience. Uh, when you think about what goes on at the amateur levels these days, and so that helps accelerate uh, the maturation process. But um, you know, it, it is what it is ultimately for me. I was, um, I, I always am glad that I got the opportunity that I did. I, I, I never say I regret that I got to the big leagues as early as I did, but I always kind of wondered too, what it would have been like if I had that full season in triple I got up to such a great start, uh, in 1995, uh, in the minor leagues. And when I first got to triple a, I was throwing really well. Um, I think I, gosh, I remember this stuff. I don't know how I remember it. I think I had my first three games, I threw seven innings apiece, and the last two were seven shutouts. I had like 18 strikeouts, and I think like three walks, which is a high ratio for me as a guy who always struggled to throw strikes. And I've always wondered if they had just left me there, at least through September, if I got to make maybe 15 or 20 starts in AAA that year, maybe a September call-up, maybe try to crack the rotation in 96. Would my career path have been different uh, if I was brought along in a more traditional fashion of development? In Game 1 of the World Series, John Lester, there were camera angles of Lester. He seemed to have some sort of goop in his glove. There was an incident earlier this year with the Red Sox with Clay Buchholz that seemed to have grease all over his arm. There's some that say it's just to help with the grip. There's some that say that's cheating and it's directly cheating. What are your thoughts on that type of thing? It depends on what it is. I mean, I think you have to be really specific. I think what we saw from Clay Buchholz was uh, a pretty common combination of, of putting, you know, you've heard it probably bullfog, which is basically just a sunscreen uh, on your arms. But when you mix it with rosin and you touch it to your fingers, it, it gives you some tackiness. Now, whether or not that's really illegal, it's, that's, that's a little bit tougher one, I think, to really pin down because you're allowed to put sunscreen on, you're allowed to have rosin. Uh, you mix them together and it gives you just that, just enough of that little bit of tackiness um, to help you a little bit. And absolutely helps your pitches. I mean, pitching, I always tell people pitching in Chicago, uh, pitching, I never pitch in Boston in October, but I've pitched there when it's cold weather. Uh, it can be difficult when you're in those northern cities. Uh, it's very cool, not a lot of moisture in the air, depending on you know how your body is built and what your hands are like. For me, 
always felt like the ball was slick in those atmospheres. And so, uh, you know, you try to find a way to, to eliminate that, to get you back to where it would feel like if you were pitching in June in just about any other city where you have some moisture in your hands, you have some tackiness so you can throw all of your pitches. I think what we saw, John Lester was a little bit more than that. Um, it looked like he had some firm grip in there, which is the little sticky substance that guys use. And, uh, you know, it's one of those nuances of the game that, you know, if you look at it black and white, is it illegal? It is. But I think, you know, based on what you've seen, the reactions, not just from the Boston Red Sox, but also from the St. Louis Cardinals hitters and their manager, uh, people look at it like we just say, hey, it is what it is. You got, if you want to catch a guy, you have to catch him during the game. And that's a and that's tricky business. It's a slippery slope there if you're going to – bring attention to another team's pitcher, you better make sure um, that you've caught him doing something because otherwise you're just going to start some war where everybody's checking each other. And so generally it ends up being accepted. Um, you know, Even though, yes, it is illegal, you have to catch somebody essentially during the game to get them. So uh, it's somewhat gamemanship. Uh, I've talked to a lot of hitters. They don't seem to be too concerned about it. Uh, if you told me that I was allowed to pitch with pine tar all the time and could be open about it, uh, I would tell you that that would be great. I feel like my pitches would be better consistently. Uh, so it definitely helps you. But I think, again, when you go back to the weather, the circumstances uh, in places like Boston in October, uh, the last thing you want is a guy uh, having a ball, baseball is too slippery in his hands and, and unable to control it. Modern pitchers, pitchers' workloads now are monitored closely from their first professional start in the minors. Uh, there are innings limits and there are pitch counts. What are your thoughts on workloads and what do we actually know about the best ways about keeping pitchers healthy? Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any definitive blueprint. I think some guys are genetically predisposed to getting hurt and there's no way of getting around it. Um, Matt Harvey was treated probably in a very cautious and um, you know, in a way that he probably should have. I mean, I understand that. And I thought that watching his, his mechanics were definitely clean enough where he was doing everything right and there weren't any concerns when you watched him. Uh, and yet here he goes and has to have Tommy John surgery. And so I think with some guys it's just unavoidable. When you talk about a guy like Steven Strasburg, Matt Harvey, uh, the power that they have, the torque that is put on that elbow when they're throwing uh, their sliders at 90, 91, 92 miles an hour, and as good as they are, it does seem like it's a recipe uh, for an injury ultimately. Now, I don't think a pitch count is going to stop that. But you'll get guys that don't have you know, the best mechanics. I think of a guy like Chris Sale whose arms and elbows and legs and all over the place. And you watch him, you think, gosh, this guy, is, you think he's just going to get hurt. And he may never get hurt. I mean, he just his body type may just allow him to continue to do that, and he may never have an injury. A lot has been made about Tim, Lin Tim Lincecum and his mechanics and how eventually he's going to break down. And, you know, he hasn't done it. I mean, it just hasn't happened. I want to say he's up to about seven seconds. It's six years now uh, with 32 or more starts per year. Uh, so you can say it looks like a guy should break down all day long, but if they don't break down, they don't break down. Um, and so it, there's no perfect formula. Every team is going to take their precautions. Uh, you know, there's a balance in there somewhere because the one thing you don't want to do is baby guys too much and get them to the point where they're dependent on it. I've played with guys that were held to pitch counts, I thought, unnecessarily. And I think ultimately they use that as a crutch, and then you start to breed them essentially like ponies. And if you want a thoroughbred, you need to train it, train him like a thoroughbred. And so I think there's a, there's a definitely a, a delicate balance in there. There's a line somewhere that's not perfect. It's not definitive. It's not going to work for every pitcher and every team. Uh, you just have to, you know, do what you think is best as an organization. But sometimes I think you have to do it case by case. And then again, you can do everything absolutely right 
and a guy can still blow his elbow out or his shoulder. Now, did you have Tommy John at one point? I did not, and I think I'm one of the guys that was extremely lucky. Uh, I never had any major injuries until I was 36 years old. I blew up my rotator cuff at 36 years old, and I was pitching in Korea and went and saw Dr. Andrews, and he was shocked that I had zero arm injuries up until that point. Uh, I think it's a product of genetics. I think it's a product of where I grew up because I didn't pitch as much as a kid. I played rec ball my entire life, so there was never any overuse. Uh, I went into the bullpen at 25 years old as a lefty reliever and got beat up pretty good and used a lot, a lot of up and downs, but my arm recovered well. I was very fortunate in that regard that I basically went through my first, I guess it was 36, so yeah, you know, 13, 14 seasons before I had an injury, uh, any injury at all. I mean, I never missed any time. Um, and I felt very blessed that that happened. I start, I was a starting pitcher again that year in 2008, no, 2009, uh, when that happened. Yeah. So I guess that was, yeah, seven, 16 years into my career. So 2009, um, I was starting again in Korea, which I hadn't been a starter in a decade. And I think that's probably what ultimately did me in, but I was, I was very lucky. And I wasn't a guy that had great mechanics. I wasn't a guy that, uh, I had good work ethic as far as training my body, but I wasn't overly, um, disciplined in doing the shoulder exercises and taking care of my shoulder. Uh, I just think I was really, really lucky to be quite honest with you. And, and that's why I tell you, I don't think there's any blueprint. I don't think there's any perfect way to do it. You mentioned pitching in Korea. You also pitched in Japan. Tell me a little bit about it, in pitching in both of those places and how it compares to pitching against a major league lineup. I loved it. I loved playing in Asia. I mean, it was a tremendous opportunity to continue your career uh, and go to a place and both of them really were Baseball fans are fanatical. They love the sport. Uh, they love Americans or really foreigners, you know, all around, whether you're American, Dominican, Canadian, that come there, appreciate the culture, make an effort to uh, want to be there. And uh, they always make an assumption that any foreigner that walks in is probably going to be a little boisterous and loud and arrogant. And uh, there's nothing you can do about that. That's just the assumption. But when you get there, if you if you act differently, they really have an appreciation for that and they embrace you. Um, it was so much fun. I mean, it was a great experience for my family. My children went to school in Japan for a little while. I didn't think I wanted to go to Korea and uh, ended up really loving it over there. I mean, I just I love the culture. I love the way they play the game. It's different. It's not, it's not the big leagues. It's not the big league level of play. There's a couple of really good players over there. We've seen some of them come here uh, to the big leagues. I faced you, Darvish. Um, I actually have to hit against him, but I, you know he was there when I was there. Got to see him, probably the best that I ever saw over there. Saw a couple other guys. I, I, I faced, uh, went up against Tanaka. Tanaka pitched against us, the guy that's probably going to be the next big thing to come over uh, this year from Japan. Uh, Hyunjin Ryu was in Korea when I was there, so I got to see him firsthand. And there's some good talent over there. It's just not nearly as deep um, as we have here, but there are some impact major leaguers, but not a ton. And so ultimately, I tell people that. So the competition there is probably a uh, handful of, you know, each team probably has a couple of big leaguers, not everyday guys, um, like an occasional superstar, a lot of AAA players, and then even some AA level players. So it was good competition. It wasn't great. Uh, but living over there, the experience was, for me, um, just really unbelievable. Now, Darvish is one of these guys. He throws like eight different pitches, and he throws many of them very well. Was he doing that even at that point when he was younger in Japan? He was. I mean, he had, you know, his repertoire and a lot of guys over there had it where they would, you know, throw multiple pitches. And sometimes I would ask and hear, well, you know, we do this. This is a shoot toe and a shoot toe is essentially a two seam fastball here. And then they would talk about, you know, 
um, backwards sliders and, and a lot of this kind of nonsense. And, uh, you know, some of it for me was, I, they overthought it. They always, uh, a lot of guys tried to have a deeper repertoire than I thought was necessary. One of the things that I learned over my career, especially as a reliever was, you know, make two or three pitches really, really good instead of trying to have four or five that are average and dividing your attention among them. Uh, so Darvish definitely had a deep repertoire then he really dominated, uh, in Japan. I mean, you see how good he's been over here especially with the strikeouts and the power. And uh, when you're talking about a country like Japan where there's so much less power there than there is uh, here in the States, um, you can imagine. I mean, he absolutely dominated guys, and we're seeing it now from Tanaka. Uh, but generally the repertoire uh, for those guys, you see a lot more split fingers in, in Asia and especially Japan. Uh, we see it now with Uihara, how good his is. I mean, he's an older guy. He's been here for a while. But really the Japanese, I feel like, have really mastered uh, the split finger as opposed to over here where we maybe have mastered, I think, the two-seam fastball, uh, the cutter, and the curveball. Uh, generally speaking, I mean, these are very general terms, but I think you see more of the, the split finger there. Uh, going over to Japan and having a two-seam fastball is a big deal. They don't see that. Everything there is pretty straight. You don't see a lot of two-seamers. You don't see a lot of big curveballs. And so when American come o- comes over and has that, and the cutter, too, uh, when American come o- comes over and has that, they're uh, they're usually pretty impressed. At one point in your career, you adapted more of a sidearm delivery. What did you feel that brought to the table for you? I tell you, that was so much fun for me. I knew that when I was done, I always wanted to at least go into retirement having tried being a side armor. Uh, I thought about it for years, but just kept putting it off because I was doing other things and had other opportunities from where I was with my regular arm angle. Uh, you know, I knew what I was going for, basically, that, that one batter guy comes in, sidearm faces, lefty, and gets out of there. Uh, I had so much fun trying to do it, and it got really close. The Mets were generous enough to give me a shot last year, sent me to double-A, which was kind of strange to be there at 39 years old. I uh, hadn't been back to double-A since 1995, so to be with a bunch of kids um, was fun. I mean, I had a completely different outlook uh, on how I looked at my career at that point. But, uh, you know, listen, it was it, it's a great opportunity. I, mean, you'll see, I think you'll see more and more guys doing it as their careers get near the end and they realize there there's no other alternatives. Um, it's like the knuckleball. It's completely different. Not a lot of guys are doing it, uh, but it's very effective. I, I, I think that there's a place for it in the big leagues. We see guys like Brad Ziegler. You see what Javier Lopez is doing with the San Francisco Giants. Uh, there is a lot of opportunity for sidearm pitchers. Uh, the curveball I had right away. Uh, which I just I basically just used my same knuckle curveball grip. Um, it took me a little bit while to get comfortable with the mechanics and the two seamer, and then the changeup really came along for me to help me neutralize right-handed hitters. And I got really really close last year to getting a call up with the Mets. Um, I really was you know doing really really well. I don't think I let up a, a run for maybe my first. I don't know, 15 or 16 outings. And then toward the end, I really struggled. I just had a couple of huge blow-up games. Um, in the minor leagues, they cannot just they can't use guys situationally all the time. And so there was a couple of instances where my manager needed me to suck up some innings, and uh, it didn't go particularly well. But I learned through that. I understood what I was doing wrong, made adjustments as I went. And uh, it was great. I had so much fun doing it. Uh, I wish I could have went a little farther and had a chance to do it in the big leagues, but uh, no complaints about being able to do this for as long as I have and even get the opportunity to try that in the minor leagues. CJ, I want to ask you about some of your former teammates and contemporaries and get some quick thoughts on them. You played for Houston in the 90s. Tell me a little bit about Jeff Bagwell and Craig Biggio. Well, I tell you, two kind of two different guys. Jeff Bagwell, both good guys, but Jeff Bagwell for me, 
one of the most generous teammates I've ever had. I really enjoyed my time with him. Uh, an absolute gamer, a guy who got after it really hard. But, you know, I have a tendency as I get older to look back at guys that I play with and think of them as people before I think of them as players. And and I can just tell you that Jeff was so much fun to be around. I only got to do it for a year. But he, uh, you know, a guy's guy, uh, a great teammate, great player, uh, competitor, like I said. Really a pleasure for me to have played with him. Uh, Biggio, similar but different. In, in some respects, uh, obviously another guy had a great career, really got after it, played the game hard, a little more quiet, a little bit more maybe that kind of professional square attitude, I think, toward what he did. But, um, you know, watching him, what he did every day was also impressive. I mean, he, uh, you know, he's a great talent, and uh, he, he found a way to get it done often for a long time. You were teammates with Alex Rodriguez. How was he like as a teammate? Yeah, I got to play with Alex parts of two years in Texas and then for a little bit in New York with the Yankees. Uh, it was it was kind of weird to see the transformation from him. I think things really changed when I left Texas and went to New York. I always looked at Alex when, as a, first of all, even before I played with him, uh, when I was on the other side of the field, uh, for me, one of the best players I ever saw close up. And I'd always told people, this this guy is the best player in baseball. I've told kids, if you're looking for somebody to, to kind of pattern yourself after or watch every day, Alex Rodriguez is the guy to do it. Uh, seeing him in, seeing him firsthand in Texas uh, confirmed what I'd already believed. And I saw him as a guy who I thought could do whatever he wanted to do, <laughs> excuse me, on the baseball field. He had... Uh, you know, he still does, but tremendous talent uh, to me was extremely clutch, always came through in big situations. He managed the game from shortstop. He was good about talking about pitch selection. He and I had some conversations over that time about pitch selection and how you work guys and uh, always found that stuff fascinating. And he was a real student of the game. Um, and in New York, it was a little bit different when I saw him that he didn't have to be the big guy anymore. And I think there was really an adjustment period for him. Uh, going from a team of superstars and not having to be the superstar, uh, but just a tremendous talent to do unbelievable things. I was always impressed with him, uh, what he could do from his opposite field power standpoint. A guy that, you know, I remember watching Roger Clemens throw him just a, a great fastball down and away, and then watching Alex hit it uh, into the bleachers in right field at Old Yankee Stadium. Uh, to me, that kind of signified how good he was. Um, power to all fields, plus defense, plus arm, uh, a great player. Uh, near the end of his career now, and as things are starting to slow down, he's not the same guy. But I uh, always thought uh, Alex Rodriguez is probably, if if not the highest, one of the highest talents I ever had to play with. Frank Catalanato came on a few episodes ago. He talked about how he used to keep a notebook and a log, and he would compare it with other players on the team, scouting pitchers. Bob Tewksbury came on. He did the same thing. He said he kept a very detailed notebook about scouting players and who his opponents were and what kind of pitches they may chase. Did you ever do that? Did you keep a, a notebook on your opposition? I kept notes. Um, and some of them, um, you know, mental as well. Once I was in the bullpen as a short reliever, as basically a loogie and a guy who came in to get lefties out, it was easy to remember uh, what I had to do game to game to guys. I had a tendency to get away from overthinking it a little bit. That was another issue of mine early in my career, especially regarding scouting reports. There's a balance in there as a pitcher. Um, where you pitch to your strengths versus pitching to a hitter's weaknesses. And you have to be very careful. And there was a lot of times that I got myself in trouble attempting to pitch to a pitcher's we- uh, hitter's weakness as opposed to going to my strength. And so uh, I knew what I wanted to do against each hitter uh, in big situations, especially. And, and sometimes it was different depending on what the, you know, what the score of the game was. But ultimately, uh, I knew what I had to do. There wasn't necessarily one big book of everything. I think if I lasted as a starter, that probably would have been more part of what I did in my preparation. But I had my notes, kept track of certain things. We'd have scouting reports before every meeting and always formulated a game plan before every game.
a common narrative, you know, with broadcasters and with writers is that there needs to be a closer mentality or there's a different mentality coming out of the bullpen than starting. Did you feel that there is? You did both. Oh, yeah. There's a huge difference. Uh, it took me a little bit of a while. It took me a while to adjust. I spent the whole year in 1997 as a starter uh, in AAA with the Astros, and then I made the team as a reliever. And that was there was a big adjustment period there for me. And what I ultimately found out that, um, and it's hard for me to admit again because I wish I could have been successful as a starter, but uh, I felt like the bullpen ultimately was better for me. I was a better fit for it uh, mentally. I liked coming in and basically blowing it out for however long, if it was one hitter or five, and just getting after it, and then coming to the park the next day and being able to do it again. You know, I had some some streaks there where I did pretty well. Did a good job against lefties. Um, you know, command was always an issue for me, but for the most part, um, you know, I could keep a job in the big leagues because I knew how to get lefties out at least for a little while. And um, and I understood it. If there was something to coming in, I liked coming in. Uh, guys on base, big situation, you have to go get, you know, for me, a guy like Jim Tomeo uh, or Jason Giambi, and you got one shot to do it. And so I like that. That seemed to work better for me, a little bit more high risk, high reward. And at the same time, you don't come through in those situations. That's the one time the, the writers will want to talk to you afterwards. You know, as a lefty reliever, you're not the first guy that most people want to talk to unless you've made a mistake. And so um, I like that. That just seemed to work for me. It was a lot of fun. I actually seemed to struggle more when the game wasn't on the line or wasn't a big situation or we were losing, which is probably more of a mental lapse. Uh, but I loved coming in a big situations, having to get an out. Uh, like I said, tying run, winning run, whatever it was, and scoring position, um, always it was just uh, it, I just seemed to feed me. I really, really enjoyed it. Tell me about coming coming to grips with retirement. You'd been throwing baseballs around your entire life. You had a long career. You played in the majors. You played in Japan. You played in, you played in Korea. How do you come to grips that you're no longer capable of playing professional baseball? You know, it was easy for me, and I know a lot of guys struggle with it. But uh, I look back and essentially got to play for 19 years total uh, professionally, and uh, that's. 10 more years than I thought I was going to be able to play. And so it was easier for me because there were so many points in my career where I legitimately thought my career was over. And I told you that even happened to be in 1995, which seems ridiculous. And when I look back, it was. Um, but I really thought the first time I got sent down that my career was in jeopardy. And then it started to happen again. In 2002, I thought my career was over. I got released uh, in the middle of the season at AAA. I really thought that was it. Uh, a couple more times over the years where I really thought I was done. I mean, pretty much every year after that, for the most part, uh, 2003, 2005, uh, then I went to Asia, um, you know, wondered after I finished in Japan in 08 if that was it, and to continue to, to hang in there uh, and, and really finish. Uh, I was pitching, you know, this past January in winter ball, and so I kind of made it into, you know, 2013, not the regular season, but I threw some professional pitches in 2013. And so uh, for me, um, you know, beyond blessed to have done that. And so it was easier for me to go into retirement because these last probably six or seven years, I knew what I wanted to do when I was done. And so I was able to kind of slowly transition and slowly start to lay the groundwork for that once I knew I was done pitching. And so I always went on what so many other retired players had told me beforehand, which was, if you still have the passion, if you still have the opportunity, you should continue to play and make them tear the uniform off of you. And I think most retired players will tell you they miss it. They miss playing, they miss the competition, they miss the teammates. And so um, I made sure I hung in there because I knew I still had the passion to prepare and to play. And so I continued to go. And then once I realized it was done, uh, so be it. You know, I continued to train through spring training this year just in case anything could happen. Uh, independent ball was not something I wanted to do. I knew what I wanted to do with my life after 
after baseball, and so uh, it was time to let it go. And I tell you, it was, it was a lot easier for me uh, than I think it is for most guys, but I also think that's because I really thought that this was going to happen multiple times, really, over the last decade. You've been listening to C.J. Nitkowski. You can check out his website at cjbaseball.com and give him a follow on Twitter at C.J. Nitkowski. C.J., thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Uh, my pleasure, Ross.